It's refreshment time, folks. After returns and videotapes. Are either one of these any good? I don't watch movies. Do you like scary movies, Sydney? You have a TV? No. I just like to read the TV guide. Read the TV guide. Don't need a TV. Books, records, films, these things matter. Call me shallow. It's the fucking truth. Over 1,600 titles. Each for rent at just $2 the first night and only... I don't watch TV. Yeah, but you are aware that there's an invention called television, and on this invention they show shows, right? Tonight on Six Ed World. Okay, one channels 18, 24, 63, 10987, and Weather Channel. Welcome to the Frog Brothers Podcast with your hosts Justin and Alec. Alright, thanks for joining us on episode 2 of the Frog Brothers Podcast, everyone. Special thanks to you guys out there who listened to last week's episode which was our first episode, and uh, to those of you who followed us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram, and all that stuff, uh, we're now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Twitter, YouTube. Um, we're going to do extra content for YouTube, so be sure to subscribe to that. How you going? Yeah, thanks for checking us out last week. We appreciate it. So, how's, uh, how's your week been going? Oh, it's not too bad. It's a lot of the same old, same old quarantine nonsense. Plenty of time to watch movies, plenty of time to catch up on TV, do boring stuff like yard work and clean. How about you? Pretty much the same thing. Trying not to spend too much money on collectibles right now, but I have made some eBay purchases, and uh, mostly I blame that on the Yes Have Some podcast because they are doing some awesome live streaming of videos and encouraging everyone to buy things. I started getting an essential collection for VHS tapes, so I picked up Jurassic Park, Top Gun, and the Back to the Future trilogy on VHS. Uh, so we had some of those as kids, but I didn't have my own copies. And, you know, I think we ruined, like, all the dust jackets out of every video we ever had as kids. So yeah, it's nice to get those with nice packaging to put on the shelf for a display. And then going for my Ghostbusters collection, I'd recently bought a copy of Ghostbusters 1 on Betamax. And then on eBay, I found a copy of Ghostbusters 2. On Laserdisc, I have the first one on Laserdisc, and the second one, I found a Japanese version of it, and I thought the uh, artwork and the back cover of that was a lot cooler, so I snagged that, and then I got a UMD version that's for the PSP, just because if you're going to buy all the formats you don't have, you may as well keep buying more. Right. Yeah, I was on the Yes Have Some eBay live stream the other night, and was just spending the whole time lusting after stuff I can't afford, since... I got a job right as this quarantine stuff was all happening, and then they rescinded the offer almost immediately, so I'm still just broke living and lusting after things, but it's probably better off that way for now. Yeah, I definitely understand that. There's a lot of people out there struggling, so we feel for everybody out there that's not not uh, not being taken care of or going through tough times, so keep your heads up. We'll get through this eventually. Yep. If you're looking for a fun video to watch, if you saw Tiger King, which we roasted a little bit last week, uh, Yes Have Some Podcast made a most amazing video called I Saw Slimer instead of I Saw Tiger, and it's uh, it's pretty glorious. If you haven't watched it, check it out. Yeah, I actually just watched it about an hour ago, and come, yeah, I shared it. <laughs> things hilarious. Oh, a few other things I got in the mail this week. I got my... Uh, Spider-Man from the 90s cartoon, that figure came in the mail. 
my Jurassic Park Dilophosaurus came in the mail, and then uh, still waiting on a few other things to get shipped and get sent. So always nice to look forward to have uh, some new goodies in the mailbox to open up and check out and keep you entertained during this quarantine. Oh, for sure. I used to have all four of the uh, ALF Burger King puppets, and now I'm just, I only have one of them through just various moves of and haste of like uh, being depressed and not packing things right and just going through hard times. But I have one of them left and I just need three of the other ones and then I'm going to start just collecting the shit out of ALF stuff. Yeah, ALF's pretty awesome. That's some classic stuff right there. ALF doesn't get enough love. Like, that's a series they need to bring back, but I don't know if you can do that without Willie, so kind of conflicted on that. Right. I'd like to see a continuation of it, though. Like, have it be the same family, like one of the kids has ALF hanging out with them now. That'd be kind of entertaining. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Paul Fusco, who, you know, voiced ALF and created helped create the show, he would totally be down to do it. He's always down to do ALF anytime he, get, he can, so... Yeah, and I don't even know if I'd want a series. Like, just give me a really, really awesome ALF movie. Yeah, it's, it's still got to be a puppet. Yeah, good Netflix movie with the puppet ALF. Paul Fusco back. Bring in a couple other actually funny people from these days. Not just like, because I don't know, m- maybe they could have been on TV, but like Project ALF. You watch that and all these extra I don't. I don't. I couldn't name almost one actor. I think Martin Sheen is the only nameable actor in it, which is a very high-profile actor. And what the fuck does he do in Project Alf, playing a general? And then there's nobody else recognizable, but Alf. He probably owed a producer a favor. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. But so let's get moving on to episode by episode. We now return to the real Ghostbusters. Diane, 11.30 a.m., February 24th. Entering the town of Twin Peaks. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. Bill Murray's the funniest man on the planet. Episode by episode. All right, so we're talking Extreme Ghostbusters, Episode 2, Darkness at Noon, Part 2. Part 2? Yeah, Part 2. Yeah, listen to me there. I know exactly what I'm talking about. No, so episode two starts out with a kind of a bit of a cold open where it just kind of recaps a little bit of the episode one stuff just to bring you up to speed there. Yeah. So some of the things I thought were interesting, um, the equipment's falling apart, it's in bad shape, and they're kind of talking about everything because where the episode one left off, off, episode two picks up and they're trying to figure out what their game plan is to go out and handle all this stuff. Yeah. It was was cool to see the packs animated in that style because they definitely resemble the real ghostbusters packs but they aren't they don't look exactly like them they look more like them when they bring them back in back in the saddle yeah so they they showed they're very similar like the pka meter looked pretty good but the packs itself i did notice a few errors in there there's like one time where they show the tip of one of the throwers and instead of being the full pointed tip it's like kind of got a cutoff tip that's recessed so i thought yeah. that was kind of a strange thing there on that and then in other scenes it wasn't so it was just like somebody was animating it and they're like whatever just leave it yeah it was kind of interesting and weird still cool but um one of the scary things i, I remember from this episode as a kid watching it again was the uh blind guy on the bus how they're able to like show you that 
And I would always get in my head as a kid watching something like that and immediately think, man, it would really fucking suck to be blind and really suck in this situation to be blind. That's terrifying. Yeah, but I guess if you are you are blind, hopefully you don't really know it or know the difference, right? If, if you're born that way, I guess if you lost your sight, that would be a lot harder to handle emotionally. Yeah, I'm we sure. We all got our fears. We all got our fears in life. But that's another Extreme Ghostbusters episode, so <laughs> we'll get to that one later. Um, I was really noticing the score in this episode, and I was thinking about just the, how good the score is in general. Um, the real Ghostbusters score was always good as well. but uh, Yeah, I, I took some notes on that as well. So some really cool stuff. It's very movie-like, right? The, the score is actually a lot of good music cues and stuff in there, like... With real Ghostbusters, it was good, but it had a lot of those poppy, like, kind of synth-wavy dance tunes just kind of, like, filling in there a lot that they'd reuse and, and use as filler all the time. And this actually stuff, it seems like they really wanted the tone to fit more accurate to what was going on on screen, so it seems like there's a lot more customization going on. Yeah, definitely. It's, um, cinematic, is that's a good way to describe it. It's uh, very enjoyable to watch. I was also noticing, like, how it's animated when it's night there. It looks very blue, you know. All the blue tones throughout this episode were really uh, beautiful. Yeah, I took notes on the color palette of the night scene. So it's like a bunch of blues and grays and blacks. And like it really feels like you're at night. Right. Which also makes it really cool when they're firing the proton streams at the end. Because, you know, once they update the packs, the streams are different colors. So those bright greens and pinks and stuff like really pop when they're having all that dark background going on. It's really funny when one of the f funny lines of the show is when Egon says that the Akira needs a host and Eduardo's like, what, like Alex Trebek? Yeah, so Eduardo is like the lovable idiot in this episode. Like he's got so many kind of like one-liners that, you know, at first you're going to say, oh, he's going to be a lot like Venkman, but... He's like a dumb version of Venkman. Yeah. Like, he's funny, but he doesn't have quite all the charm just because he's not that intelligent. So, um, one of the lines is, boil-infested zombies. Like, that kind of cracked me up because everyone's got these giant boils on their face. Yeah. No, so Kylie gets blasted by Eduardo, and Akira gets away. And then one of the other lines in there that cracked me up was, like, all the references they have, so... When uh, Eduardo's talking to Kylie after she gets blasted, he says, man, you pulled a full Linda Blair. <laughs> yeah. Full exorcist on us or full possessed or something that cracked me up. Yeah. That's always good to have those like pop culture references that even as a kid, you got a pop culture reference to the exorcist. You may have not have got Linda Blair, but maybe you did just because you had heard it and associated with it enough. Like I, I think I got it because mom talked about Linda Blair and the exorcist because it made an impact on her and she always... Talked about how fucked up that movie was, you know. Yeah, and then there's another line that Eduardo says, you know, when they're making fun of him, and they're like, he's like, deductive reasoning, and you're just like, oh, man, what a dumbass. <laughs> so then they go down into the subway tunnel, yep. and Roland finds this, like, door in the tunnel. They kind of push through there, and then they talk about all the bars in the tunnel, and they're talking about, you know, how it's there to hold Akira and all the other ghosts in there, so... Which I thought was reminiscent of immediately of the subway tunnel scene in Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, they did a good job of like throwing some of those vibes in there without being over the top. So right. that definitely reminded me of Ghostbusters 2 a lot when they're down in there kind of looking around. But they made it fresh too, though, because like the ghosts are originating there instead of being 
in the museum and then just manifesting down there. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then Egon says that Akira is a highly evolved ghost. And, you know, Janine starts taking phone calls back in the firehouse. And she's like, Egon Spangler's residence. And does that a few times. And then finally she answers the phone and she says, Ghostbusters, I think we're back. Yeah. And then jumps into like that they've had 50 calls immediately. So then you almost get like kind of a mini montage scene of them like doing all the gear upgrades, right? So you kind of see them going through making the pack upgrades and changes. Yeah. Um, Some of that stuff that's in the intro. Yeah. And so that's when I really started noticing the music there because like the subtlety of the music in the background of that scene, like there's not a lot of dialogue going on. You just see him acting on upgrading everything and like the music and they really hit the tone of the, of what was going on. Right. It's like a little eerie, but it's a little uplifting at the same time. Like you don't really know where it's going to go. So I thought that was well done. Yeah. And th- this episode's interesting too, because it develops that, uh, first sign of flirting between Eduardo and Kylie again, when, uh, she's totally flirting with him as the ghost and it's Akira because, you know, she can tell or whatever and knows that Eduardo's into her. And kind of uses that to manipulate him. And then, you know, he makes a crack about it later. And she jokes about it back. Like, she remembers what he was saying, but she's ignoring Oh, yeah. It. He asked her, he's like, uh, I mean, it's almost like Quentin Tarantino vibes. Like, did you mean exactly. what you back there? Did you mean and that's what, what I was thinking there? when I heard that line. And uh, I was like, uh, do, you, uh, do you remember what you said back there? And she goes, no. <laughs> kind of has like a coy look on her face and then she says but i could put on a couple of pounds and then like you see just eduardo's reaction like uh so apparently you do know what i was talking about hey eduardo would you do me a favor <laughs> yeah so then after they get all that gear done, they go out to the brooklyn bridge so they kind of like have a nice big open space with that nighttime scene and yeah. Akira's up there and spews fire when they try to blast her and burns the Ecto-1 up and they all kind of like dive and have to like think think on their feet, which is almost anticlimactic because, right, they're just trying to get through the episode at this point, it feels like. Yeah. And you see her call all of her little ghost children, you know, and everyone's zits pop and little ghosts fly out and they're kind of fighting and attacking that. Yeah. So they get through and then they wind up trapping her, so... And then after that, you kind of see everyone kind of clears up. They show a couple of people around town. Then you see Egon show up. And then the funniest thing is, right, they did a good job of, like, continuing on what happened earlier. Like, a lot of shows would have a continuity error, like, right here, and they'd come back in the Ecto. But, you know, they either walked back or picked up a taxi and rode back that way because they just come walking through the double doors of the firehouse when it's all said and done. Yeah. So, and then, of course... You know, they got to do like some cheesy throwbacks, right? You know, because this is a kid show, right? And so Garrett quotes a bank when he says, we came, we saw, we kicked ghost butt. You know, and he's like, the thing I love about his character is like his enthusiasm, right? You always feel like he's just excited about everything and proud and stuff, you know? And Right. They um, did a great job with his character because he's very uplifting, even though he's the guy in a wheelchair character. Yep, and then you kind of see them transition down to the uh, containment unit in the basement, and they're talking like they're saying, you know, is it over? And then you see, like, it cut back down to the subway tunnel, and you see a bunch of more ghosts escape, and then, uh, you know, you kind of see what happens there as the episode wraps up. So 
a great yeah. way to say like, hey, you know, this is really just starting. So I think that was pretty cool how it uh, it ended there, and a lot of that footage and stuff is what wound up being in the uh, introduction to the show on the opening credits. Yeah, that's what I was that was noting too. There was a lot of stuff like that where they were assembling the gear, and then when they released the ghost from the subway at the end there, and that's a really cool. Uh, like you said, way to end these this two-part series and kind of say, all right, we've got our Ghostbuster team and we've got ghosts. Let's The rest of these are going to be the fucking episodes of the show. Yeah, and I didn't notice that yet, but maybe once we're done with this, we should go back to this last scene of the episode and see if there's any ghosts on there we recognize that maybe have other appearances later on. Right. It was kind of hard to tell, but maybe go frame by frame. Could probably do some research on that. Yeah, for sure. So we'll do the next episode. And so anyone that's going to want to follow along and watch at home, we're streaming all these on Hulu. And we're just going to go in the order that they have them listed. So I know there's some concerns over the accuracy of the airing versus the continuity of the storyline for some of these episodes. But we're just going to watch them as Hulu has them. So uh, don't judge us too much if uh, we don't get them in the right order that you think they are. We're just going by what? what we're presented with yep so next episode uh will be episode three of extreme ghostbusters another man's garbage it's another man's garbage all right, garbage, so, garbage, garbage. <laughs> so this week let's we're talk talking about ratings. <laughs> tell me about the ratings before you tell me about the movie. Tell you about the ratings. The ratings. Tell you about the ratings. Four percent critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. This is truly another man's garbage. Every man's garbage, practically, except me and you. Maybe a few other people. Is- Hopefully, you listening to this but you know if not fight me this is almost as bad as the et game for atari was <laughs> i'm surprised there's not a landfill summer with all the copies of this on vhs and dvd stuffed away covered up to be forgotten yes reviews of this movie are often confused with newspaper clippings from 9-11 it's that bad it has a 51 percent viewer score surprising actually so that means only 49% of people that have seen this were like able to recognize that this is a dumpster fire of shitty entertainment. And uh, let's get into the breakdown, man. What do you think of the movie Biodome? Biodome, released January 12th, 1996. Um, stars obviously Polly Shore, Stephen Baldwin... We got a couple other people in there, namely William Atherton and Joey Lauren Adams. A couple other random ones we'll talk about later, but um, it was directed by Jason Bloom, who I looked up and didn't find much information on, except that he had directed Biodome and a few other small things that I had not even fucking heard of. And it wasn't like I hadn't heard of them because they were just movies from the 90s I hadn't heard of. They were like really obscure, random shit, so... Nothing really too much talking about, worth talking about there, but. So basically what you're telling me is that someone 
probably was like, hey, Pauly Shore, you and this guy would get along. And Pauly Shore was like, hey, maybe he could direct this movie. And then they rolled around in gasoline, lit themselves on fire, and decided to make a movie. Basically, they got a couple dumpsters together and lit them on fire. And they were like, yeah, Pauly Shore should be in this. Although, I love Pauly Shore, so anything he's in, I'm, I'm going to watch. That being said, he's only in five things, and I've watched them a hundred times. That's the uh, crazy thing, right? So he is—he does kind of have his moment, but he's like one of those SNL-style character actors, but was never on another show like that, so that really kind of made things interesting. Yeah, for sure. So Now, the only thing I thought in this movie is, like, I don't really care for the Baldwin brother. I oh, mean, I think sure. he's kind of... He's kind of an idiot in there. There's way better actors, I think, that could have been alongside him to make this funnier. Like, In the Army Now is much better just because Andy Dick Andy Dick does a good job of kind of, like, balancing out the, like, over-the-top cartoon character that Pauly Shore is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one's a good um, So, So, but. some noteworthy things I've thought about from this is that you could do an amazing mashup and make Walter Peck a Ghostbuster. <laughs> if you want to do for a cosplay because the jumpsuit he wears so and if you follow the idw ghostbusters comics you could see that the uh paranormal oversight commission like you could just change that biodome logo to that and have william atherton wear it or have walter peck wear that costume and then the scarf over there <laughs> yeah really sweet yeah and they all look nice clean and prime and when they're going into the biodome so there's a couple interesting notes I have here. Um, one of my the things that I do not like about this movie is it has some of this stupid 90s bullshit that they put in some movies where their drink that they're always drinking in this movie is called the Bladder Buster. And it's like, why is it called the bladder it's just, just, just such a stupid comedy bit that doesn't it's not even funny it's not even worth laughing at and it's throughout that whole thing it's kind of annoying you know what i mean the only time you can talk about a large drink in a movie that's actually funny is a goddamn liter of cola super troopers yeah that's but fucking hilarious the large size drinks in this has nothing to do with it right um, so what else do you hate about this movie <laughs> i don't uh particularly hate the safety dance being in it. That's pretty funny. Uh, there's a scene where Henry Gibson, who you may know from Blues Brothers, is uh, talking to Doyle and Bud, and uh, Doyle does the Nazi salute at him and says, Sir, yes, sir, at the mall. And that's funny, because Henry Gibson played a Nazi in Blues Brothers. Yeah, that's like a subtle like thing there that I think Pauly Shore, you know, shows potentially had for writing and subtlety and like working on those things, but execution's right. not always there. Well, it's like there's so. these, there's those that could be arguably a reference or not, but I'm calling it one just for the fun of me. I find it fun. Um. <laughs> so, so hands down, my favorite thing about this is William Atherton in this movie. Oh, yeah. Dr. Noah Faulkner. He starts off as like such the like idle scientist, like really excited. Even he's like, okay, you know, this is just something, you know, as a scientist, we'll have to adapt and overcome. Like, we're not happy about these morons being in here, but 
you know, you're always going to have unknown variables in science, right? So if you can identify those and you're going to run with it, okay, you know, so he does that well as the character. Right. And then he becomes such a cartoon character. Like, he totally becomes Bill Murray and Caddyshack by the end of the movie where he's making all those stupid bombs and, like, planting them everywhere. I'm just like, the only thing missing was the damn gopher that it would be running from him. <laughs> well, well, it's funny about his character in general is just the fact that we obviously know him, you and me, most from Ghostbusters because we've watched it billions of limited times. But he's also, you know, in Die Hard famously, and for me, this as well. But... He is at the. He's a member of the Environmental Protection Agency in Ghostbusters, and in this, he's. That's obviously a very much an environmental movie. That's a huge focus of this whole movie, and it's an environmental experiment, and he's an environmental scientist. Again, basically. He wasn't. He was an agent before or whatever, but you know what I mean? Relevant. Yeah, but he plays off that kind of character, character well, right? You know, he's kind of like a good villain, but there's almost. He almost has a likability to him, but, you know, he, he comes across as just enough of an asshole to make it really fun. Yeah. Even in the moments where he's being nice before he, like, fully snaps in this, it's good. Um, one of my favorite things about this movie is Tenacious D make, like, one of their first appearances, like, ever in this movie. Uh, I believe so it is their first film appearance. Yep, so they're out there playing at that band little little celebration the girls go to. Don't say we and, didn't uh, save the friggin' trees! Yep. And then I'm thinking, like, with, like, long-term food storage, right, when these idiots are climbing in there and they do all the laughing gas and start eating all the junk food, and, like, they say that Doyle is it like has, like, the nose of a dog. <laughs> and, you know, and he sniffs out these snacks, but they're all in, like, unmarked, like, cardboard crates. You're like, I mean, I guess that would be a cool, dry place, but, yeah, it was a... For people that are environmentalists, you know, they're eating a lot of trash junk food in there. You're like, shouldn't you guys be eating, like, sustainable food in there? Just kind of one of those things that was like, you know, kind of yeah. shows you, like, how some of that stuff really would be. Like, we're going to portray things one way, but here's really what's going on behind the scenes. Right. So one of my favorite uh, quotes from it is the scene where uh, I think it's when they're deciding that they're going to let them stay and that they're not going to let them out. You know, they're not going to open the doors for the biodome. And uh, Polly Shore's like, you guys aren't one of those freaky cults, are you? You're going to do weird dances, take off all our clothes, and feed us weird punch? And they're like, no. And he's like, damn. And he like, you know, they're acting upset and shit. That was always funny to me. And then... Uh, yeah, it was kind of kind of silly there. Taylor Negron, who's in... Uh, Fast Times as the pizza delivery man is also a pizza delivery man in this. And he's Oh uh, yeah, he plays the stepdad, right? Yeah. Yeah, and he's laying on the couch and one of his one of my favorite deliveries of this movie is when he says, I hurt my bladder rollerblading. <laughs> oh yeah, like it totally like you could just imagine him like trying to grind on his rollerblades or something and totally taking one to the to the junk. Right. Hitting that pole. I mean they almost should have filmed that because that would have been funny. I usually typically watch this movie every Earth Day because it starts on Earth Day and ends a year later on Earth Day, and it's pretty funny. Um, they wear really stupid fucking outfits this movie, too. I hate their fucking clothes, and I just want to, like, slap the shit out of them. But, uh, you know, that's the 90s for you sometimes. Um, it's, just, it's one of those movies 
it's PG-13, right? So it's one of those movies that's a stoner film without being a stoner film. Just like Dude Wars My Car. Yeah, it's just like it's implied they're high all the time. Right. Like, like you see them partying like with some booze and stuff, but to get that PG-13 rating, they're not using pot. Yeah, right. that makes sense. There might be a reference here or there, but there's nothing to... Like, the only person who smokes weed and dude wears my car is the fucking dog. Uh, so that's a little weird. Oh, but yeah, that's funny. A couple cool more n- notes I had on this was um, the Ramones version of Spider-Man was in this. And that was pretty cool Oh, yeah, cool I love that version of it. Yeah, and that's usually... Uh, like, if you're trying to listen to that anywhere, you usually just find the live version of that, I believe. So they played that at shows, and I love that version of that song. Yeah. Um, Rose McGowan was in this as well, and she was also um, in Encino Man with Polly Shore. Nice. Um, I did know this because I heard it on a podcast by Kevin Smith, actually, but it was relevant. Um, William Atherton was offered the role in Mallrats to play Brandy's father. Really? He would have been good in that, but I do like... uh do like how that turned out right he uh he declined because he didn't want to do an extremely low bar film and then kevin smith is like and then he goes and does fucking biodome oh yeah he must have talked about that recently because i recall hearing him talk about that that's cracking me up yeah some funny shit though and um my absolute favorite reference to anything in this movie is when uh you know they find those food cans like you were talking about before and they're like, is that laughing gas? And they pull out the laughing gas and they're eating the food while they're inhaling laughing gas and shit. And there's food all over their hands and in the laughing gas mask and they're breathing it in. And then Polly Shore takes it to his mouth and he's like, look at me, Dennis Hopper, blue velvet. Ooh, I'm slutty. Ooh, I'm slutty. And uh, I obviously hadn't seen blue velvet my entire life until I was an adult. It's one of my favorite movies now. And it was really hilarious to see that referenced in fucking Biodome. Because I feel like that's a joke that no one gets. Well, it's funny when you actually get something like that, that like, you know, you get the punchline years later, right? You're like, oh, okay, so it can yeah. make an otherwise dreary movie like a little bit better when you get some of those little subtleties that are thrown in there to like exactly. a niche crowd. Just like the same way Blue Velvet's also referenced in Clerks by Jay. When he says, I'll fuck anything that moves. But it's such a funny line, the way he delivers it. It's funny on its own without even being a reference. And then when you get it's a reference, it's fucking twice as funny. Yeah, you gotta love some of those ones like that. So, but, like, my overall thoughts in this movie, it's it's not great. It's got some funny moments in there. It's just kind of silly because, like, how do you take a movie that's, like, about the environment? You know, they go in there and they trash the place and then... You know, then they got to go through and fix everything and get it all all taken care of and right. realize, you know, they're like, oh, here's a little happy ending. Like, we were able to get everything back to 100% and perfect, and that's after we screwed it all up. And so, like, that's a metaphor for, like, humans actually doing that elsewhere, right? So for it's sure. kind of interesting because if you could see a movie like that being made today and being taken a little bit more serious about something like that just to try to show that for all the climate change and that kind of stuff going on in the world and get people into it, get people to believe in it and be more passionate about it. But this movie's just like, it's a floater in the gene pool. 
Yeah, well, it, it is a movie, that is for sure. Um, on the whole, it's not my favorite Pauly Shore movie. I love Pauly Shore. I know that other people don't, so we're probably going to end up covering a lot of his movies in this segment in the future. But I wanted to get this one out of the way specifically so we could talk about William Atherton because it's really just genius because of him and Polly Shore. The rest of it's kind of uh, touch and go, although Joey Lauren Adams is really nice to look at in this entire movie, so there's that too. Yeah, and she like does her typical character, right? So she does do a good job, and especially being a big Kevin Smith fan, like it's nice to see when someone has skill and it's us- utilized better with a better director. So like right. you see her... She has potential in there, and then you see her like in other stuff, and she's much better. And the last note I had about this movie was that um, I read this online first, and I had to like kind of watch it to confirm it. But the, during the final sequence, the timers for the coconut sync up with the time of the film. Like with how much time is left in the movie. That's pretty awesome. There's like That's nine minutes or something. Pretty interesting. It's just like one of those things you wouldn't expect from a movie like this. Yeah, such a lowbrow movie to have like such a neat little Easter egg built right into it. You're like, oh, that's clever. That might be the most clever thing you did in the entire film. Right. That and referencing David Lynch movies. <laughs> that's about it. Yep, that's uh, that's what you got from it. Other than that, it's fart-sniffing jokes, chewing toenail jokes, a lot of lowbrow shit, but... It is what it is. It is Biodome. 4% Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, the tomatoes. replay value there is not great. <laughs> I have it on DVD. William Atherton pulls off an amazing look with that mullet of his. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah. That's real real highbrow right there. It's so classy. Oh. makes you want to grow a mullet. Yeah, I, I, that actually reminds me of one more thing before we stop talking about this and move on. He, uh, One of the funny lines is when he's... He has that parrot down there, that bird with him the whole time that's like repeating shit that he says. And he's like, I am God. And then the bird's like, I'm, I'm God. And then like you see him then the next scene and he's eating the fucking parrot. And he's like, no, I am God. Oh, yeah, that is a, that is a funny thing in there, too. That is actually one of the better, better things in there. Like he gets tired of his own companion. Yeah, he's just like, fuck it. I'm eating you, you bitch. I'm fucking God. He, he's just having like a. Total psychotic breakdown. Yeah, you're like, who eats a parrot, right? Uh, and then, well, William Atherton, like, what's he going to be known for? He's going to be known as a dickless parrot-eating asshole. And do yourselves <laughs> a favor if you haven't watched the episode of Workaholics with him in it. He plays Durs' dad. It's amazing. All right, so we're going to move on. To the sick, sad world. I mean, are all your friends Satanists? A young Frenchman photographed this flying saucer, or is it? From a Do you believe in UFOs, astral projections, mental telepathy, ESP, clairvoyance, spirit photography? We're discussing Satanism and the occult departing and some of the dangers. Telekinetic movement, full trance mediums, the Loch Ness Monster, and the Sirius Atlantis. For the purposes of this study, we will focus on the number 666. Tonight on Sick, Sad World. All right. So, our topic this week is uh, kind of an old one, but given all the Tiger King shit happening, all the uh, interest in cults these days, myself included, fascinated by cults. Trying uh, to start your own, aren't you? I mean, who knows? 
if we go down in this apocalypse, we we gotta have some we gotta have some cults. Yeah, um, I guess that's a good thing. So if you guys got any good ideas for a cult, let us know. We're always open to new ideas. I mean, I'm not entirely opposed to starting a cult of Gozer worshippers in the apocalypse. I so. mean, as long as we're going to start using selenium in the metal products we have in our house. Yeah. I'll be good with that. Perform unnecessary surgeries, that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. We'll do all that. Anyway, the today we're going to talk about the Jonestown Massacre and the Jonestown Cult, otherwise known as the People's Temple or the People's Temple Agricultural Provert Project. So if you're anything like me, you don't know shit about this besides the fact that when I was asking Alec, I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? He's like, it's the Kool-Aid people. I'm like, ah, all right, we're good to go there. Sweet. Yeah, and but, I'm uh, actually going to have to correct some facts on that. It's actually Flavor-Aid. We'll talk about that later, but misrepresented as Kool-Aid. All right, we'll get into it and I'll react. All right, so number one, it was led by Jim Jones, uh, born in 1931, died in 1978. 1978 is pretty much main year we're going to talk about. I'm not going to go through all of his background and stuff, but basically in the 50s, he started a cult called the People's Temple in Indiana. Um, he grew the cult over the years. Um, he moved to Brazil for a while, then moved back to California, and that's where he started to really grow the cult. And then he started getting involved in... Um, politics and stuff and actually the public opinion of him was very high for a long time like if you ask our mom about jim jones she would be like oh yeah that guy's fucking nuts but then she would tell you he wasn't always nuts though i don't know what happened he was very much fighting for like anti-segregation in churches and you know he would help out the naacp and all these different organizations and people liked him um at one point, he described himself in an interview as an atheist trying to promote Marxism through religion. So he was totally running a cult. Obviously, I mean, nobody's arguing that. But um, So we get to the big event, which is um, the suicide. And here's where... Uh, I'm going to let you kind of react to a couple of the different things here. Um, first was that they moved their cult to Venezuela. Um, they moved it there. It was about 900 people, give or take. And he was the leader. He ran his cult. There were lots of families. There were 300 children. You know, it was a wide variety of people. White people, black people, all sorts of races, not just a bunch of weird people. So for a cult, it's pretty diverse then because it's like just a, it's more diverse than you'd normally see in that kind of a, a setting, right? Normally you find people that have a very similar life background or life experience that you're going to manipulate to join your cult. So to me, that really stands out that it's as broad as it was. Yeah. Jim Jones was very much... He was joined the Communist Party in the 50s, but he was into, the, like, Marxism. He, and he talked about socialism and stuff, but um, it was obviously Marxism that he was really into, and communism. Um, 
state-led and all sorts of weird stuff like that. But uh, so so why'd they move to why'd they make that move to Venezuela? I'm pretty sure it's political reasons to avoid political persecution and appearance, and to be able to hide and do whatever they wanted to be able to manipulate these people and shit. Because so were they already were they already taking a lot of heat in the United States by then and a lot of people speaking out against them or had people left the cult and like you know ratted on them or what? Yeah, they were starting to turn on them for sure. Um, there's a congressman I'll tell you about in a minute named Leo Ryan who really did not like them. Um, he went with a uh, some NBC reporters and a couple other journalists to investigate human rights issues there in November of 1978. Um, so he went to Venezuela to investigate that then? Yeah. They took a helicopter down there, I think, or a plane. I'm not sure what I was reading there. Um, they went down to Venezuela, got off the plane. Uh, that was Congressman Leo Ryan, who I was telling you before was there. And... uh one of the um, cult members named Don Sly attacked Leo Ryan at dinner that night because he was obviously bringing up issues with things and he was trying to get people to leave. So he's trying to get people... Yeah, he had already convinced 15 cult members to get on the plane with him and come back to America. All right, so he's down there as like a humanitarian rescue mission, right? Pretty much. He has reporters with him and everything. So he's down there. He's, he's convinced 15 people and he's attacked at dinner. So the next day, or actually not not the next day. Yeah, the next morning, they are rushing out of there. They uh, board their plane. And as they're getting on their plane, a bunch of uh, Jim Jones armed guards who are called the Reg Brigade... Red Brigade arrived on a tractor ta trailer and uh, started shooting at them all. Um, Leo Ryan was killed along with four others. NBC news reporter Don Harris, cameraman uh, Bob Braun, San Francisco uh, examiner, photographer Greg Robinson, and a member of the cult Patricia Parks. So that was like on the airstrip near the cult. So had they boarded the plane or were they getting ready to board the plane when all that went down? They were boarding the plane. They were in the process of it. So some of them were able to get on it and leave. But some of them were shot in the process. How many people How many people survived and escaped up by plane that day then? I do not have that number. But this is what this is the event that led to the suicide. What, they got to the point where there, there's no coming back from that public, from the publicity of it? Pretty much. Their original plan was to, from what I understand, relocate to, um, I believe, Russia and join their Communist Party and try to, I don't know, something with that. But Jim Jones told everyone that because of the shooting on the runway, they weren't going to accept them anymore we're going to commit revolutionary suicide together. Oh, so he told everyone in advance, like all the adults or everybody in the in the cult or what? Do you know more about that? Yeah, I'm sure 
he kind of made an announcement. It doesn't say a whole lot about that. It says that's what he was telling people. He was calling it revolutionary suicide. He had things where, in the cult, they had what they called white knights, where they would practice and they would drink a flavor aid that he would tell them was poisoned, but it wasn't, just so he could make sure that when he needed them to, they would kill themselves, basically. Oh, so he's testing their loyalty and their commitment then? Right. So... He, um, so what's the when, when's it, when it finally goes down, what's that look like? Tell me about that. It is later the same day after the runway shooting. He panics the same day. That's when all these people die. So Did he did he die too as part of that? Yes. So it is um was at the time the greatest single loss of American life until nine eleven by intentional causes. Um, the FBI found 45 minutes of tape of audio of the suicide. So that's, that's where they... twisted. Yeah. They had... Like, that had to be really depressing to hear that and actually go through that for the FBI. Like, uh, you can imagine the trauma of that. Yeah, I, I can't. It's, it's fucked up because 304 children died in this. That's obviously not suicide. That's why this is called a mass murder and suicide. Yeah, children have no... These people, yeah, the children, half of them probably didn't know they were even going to die or anything relevant to that. They just thought they were in some fucking weird shit with their parents because their parents were manipulated by this guy and all this. So 909 members total died, 304 children. They used cyanide-laced grape flavor aid. Um, yeah, because I could imagine had that not been flavor aid, if that had actually been Kool Aid, Kool Aid probably would have wound up having to change your name or do some major brand shifting, just because you wouldn't want your name coming up in news articles about how it all went down in books and everything else. Like, right? That's terrible. That's just right. unreal loss for that. I mean. All those kids, like on the one token, you're thinking like, man, you do that to all those kids, but had they spared the kids, then all the mental trauma that all those kids would have had for the rest of their lives after that, like there's just no, there would yeah. have been no easy way for anybody to, to recover from that or get out of that. But that's, ugh, as a parent, man, like that just, that pains you to hear that. Yeah, this is pretty much the worst cult um, in terms of, of loss of life and Stuff like that, you know, like the most people died in this cult, as far as I know, in any other cult. Um, Jim Jones was found with a gunshot to his head. He did not drink the cyanide-laced grape flavor aid. He shot himself in the head, and they concluded that it was a suicide. So I'm sure it was. So he just wanted that. it instant. He didn't want to deal with the, having to wait for the Kool-Aid to do its thing. Right. Yeah, that's really twisted. So that's that's definitely six sad world stuff right there. For sure. Six sad world. Um, one more note. I, I did want to not talk about it a whole bunch just because it's fucking too disturbing. But he definitely manipulated the people, men and women. Um, hopefully fucking not children. But he manipulated them into sex and orgies and all sorts of weird shit. But then he would, you know, claim that they're not supposed to fuck people that they're not married to 
except him. And I'm like, oh, this is some typical cult leader shit, man. Oh, yeah, that sounds like straight out of the, the cult reference handbook. Like, oh, here you go. Uh, yeah, this isn't okay unless it's with me. Oh, man, yeah. that's some dark, twisted stuff right there. I, you almost want to go read more about it, but at the same time, like, eh, there's enough stuff going on in the state of the world that uh, I'm good. You gave me all the all the dirty news I need on that. So here, yeah, let's put that into perspective a little bit with the Tiger King cult and the Doc Antle and all that Carol King, Carol Baskin and shit. Cause Carol King, <laughs> nice. Right? Oh, they're, they're fucking, <laughs> they're marrying. No, but um, obviously they're not fucking Jim Jones. And, uh, you know, they're terrible human beings as well. But it puts it into perspective a little bit. They, that Doc Antle's cult is not like that. But it's still, it's really fucked up. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm, I don't want to go on a whole thing down on Tiger King because now I'm just getting pissed thinking about Doc Antle. <laughs> but well i'm just thinking like you know a cult's a cult so like at what point in time does it become big enough that it really becomes a thing like right he's very calculated in keeping that to a limited size to limit the people outside so you know i don't know if you have to have a certain headcount to qualify as cult or just be cult-like in the behaviors and activities you use and the man- manipulation of people that you go from so right people call um scientology a cult and i agree with that People call Mormonism a cult, and I'm like, well, it's not any different than, you know, a lot of other religions, you know. They're well, just, the problem is, though, is that those are two of the newest religions out there, though, so, right, when you think about it, right, uh, Scientology is new enough that it's not widely accepted yet, but who's to say in 200 years that people won't really accept it and say, oh, yeah, when you go back to the beginning of it, they were persecuted, just like you go back with every other religion, and... People talk about the persecution and stuff they had to overcome for, like, widespread acceptance. So, interesting stuff there. For sure. Well, we won't talk about such a downer next next episode, but uh, eventually we're going to talk about my favorite cult, the Heaven's Gate cult. We'll get into that when we get into it, but... <clears throat> just burp. I don't know. That's that? a little... Yeah, a little disturbing that you have a favorite cult. I uh, I can't say that I have a favorite cult, so... Yeah, um, well, you learn something new every day. It's like how girls, you know, you, do you ever know those girls who are like between the ages of, I don't know, 16 and 25 that are obsessed with serial killers and shit? Yeah, do you have that same problem? No, I, I don't. I'm just saying I always thought that was really stupid and really fucking weird. I guess I get it on a cult level. I just never liked thinking about all that really fucked up death and sexual violence and shit that that stuff has and this is and yet here we are with a segment called six head world so clearly it fascinates you yes i'm not saying that i'm not part of the six Sad world i'm definitely living in it bud <laughs> this is true this is true so anyway. on that note normally we'd have a few topics there but i think that one's pretty in-depth and uh I don't really want to talk about anything else more depressing than that. Like, I'm trying to enjoy my evening here, so let's move on to something more fun. This is Top 5. So our Top 5 this week is uh, comedy duos. So we're all going to go down our list. We're going to start with number five, work our way up to number one, talk about our favorite comedy duos, what makes them that way, 
and uh, we'll kind of go from there. This is really funny to me, real quick, because I had it as top five movie duos. But looking down my list, they are all comedy duos. So that works out. <laughs> all right. So what's your, what's your number five duo? Number five for me is going to be a 90s film. A 90s film. A road trip film. A film with two characters with great chemistry. The characters named Tommy Callahan and Richard Hayden in Tommy Boy. Nice. That's excellent choice. So, obviously out of the two, Tommy Boy and Black Sheep with David Spade and Chris Farley. Tommy Boy is the clear winner. Black Sheep's still good, in my opinion. Well, Black Sheep has Gary Busey in it, so we'll fight about that one later. But go ahead. Yeah, but Tommy Boy has Dan Aykroyd in it, so fight me now. I will. <laughs> it also has Rob Lowe. What are you going to do? Yeah, Rob Lowe's in everything. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Tommy Boy... Their chemistry is perfect in it. It's everything you want from a road trip comedy film. It has a little bit of a heart in it because it's one of those 90s movies. But, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure Lorne Michaels produced this movie. Obviously, it has two SNL stars. It's basically an SNL vessel without being made from a sketch. Because those two guys have known each other for years, and that's why I think it works so well, because those characters... Those two actors knew each other for so long and worked together for so long. They were writing partners. So, Yeah, and their comedic timing, and that's pretty good. Same thing in Black Sheep as well, but yeah, they work together well. So, Yeah. So that's my number five. What do you got? My number five is a movie with the main characters named Peter and Sidney, also known as Paul Rudd and Jason Segel. And the movie is I Love You, Man. That's a good, solid pick. I, so for uh, me, that's that's the newest one I have on my entire list. And I was just thinking, there's some really good stuff out there, man. But that movie just always cracks me up. But there's things about it I like, though, too. Like the music scenes where they bond over music, like I love music, and then they're going to concerts and stuff. And so... right. Uh, you know, that one really stands out with me. I don't watch that one a lot, but like thinking about putting that on my list, I was like, man, I need to, I need to revisit that one. It's good. Yeah, I definitely have that one. I love that movie. I love Paul Rudd and Jason Siegel. So putting them together was just like, oh, this is a match made in heaven. Yeah, and, and even thinking about of, it right uh, now, like I've got a few that I know I need to add on to my list, but these are the top five that I, I thought of without doing any research. Right. Same. I, I, I don't have a lot of new ones on mine either, but um, an honorable mention. Well, we'll do that later. But uh, So what's your number four then? Number four is one of the first ones that came to my mind. Um, they are in, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight at least eight films together that I count right now between the years of 1994 and 2019. I speak of Jay and Silent Bob. Excellent. Now, see, I didn't have those on my list just because, you know, I was going by what, what I what I was thinking of when I always think of comedic duos. Like, they are amazing, and I love all Kevin Smith stuff. So, 
definitely see why that's on there, but tell me a little bit more about why you chose them and specifically which movie are you talking about with them in it? Well, see, it doesn't necessarily... I didn't look at it as that had to be one movie, but if I had to pick one that is really why they're the best movie duo, it would probably be Dogma or Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Just because that's what they're featured in the most. Um, from a content perspective, Clerks, Mallrats, and Chasing Amy, and honestly Dogma, are all probably my top Kevin Smith movies. And they're fucking solid in them. Um, yeah, I also wanted sense. to note that on my list is also Scream 3. Oh, because there are cameos in there? Yep, that's a good... Well, that's a good. He, here's the funny bit about that. So, they're uh, making Scream 3, right? And Jay and Silent Bob are on the lot. <clears throat> Scream... Well, they're, they're shooting Stab, like, 6 or Stab... I don't know, one of the Stab movies in that, you know? Mm-hmm. Which is based on the, the, the shit that happens in Scream movies, so... It's kind of a weird fucking joke on shit, but um, Jane and Silent hey, Bob make an appearance in Scream 3 on the lot for Stab, which is funny because in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which was, what, maybe a year apart from Scream 3, they were on the Miramax lot, and Scream's a Miramax movie, which is how they got the cameo in it, but that's just kind of funny and stuff, it feels like. Scream 3 is in the same universe as Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Yeah, and that's definitely kind of bizarre, right? Just because when you look at it, you're going, okay, but that's like Miramax in the right. 90s. And 90s had a lot of those weird things where you're like, what, what is this? But like, whatever, man, it's just a sign of the time. So it's kind of fun to have on the list there. What do you got for number four? So my number four has the pair, Harold Ramis, Bill Murray as John Wigner and Russell Ziski in the movie Stripes, directed by Ivan Reitman. I love that movie. It's so good. Like, you just see these slackers. Like, we're talking Polly Shore earlier, right? Like, I feel like so much of In the Army now was like, hey, what happened if we made a version of Stripes, but, like, as more of a stoner comedy? Right. So the other thing about Stripes that's really cool is that was originally going to be a Cheech and Chong vessel. And through just a number of changes and things going on in the, in the world that like it wound up getting in Ivan's hands. And to me, it just goes to show how good Harold Ramis is as an actor. Um, yeah. You know, he didn't have a crazy amount of starting roles, but he just plays, he plays the straight man so well opposite of Bill Murray that you could see like, oh man, no wonder they called him for writing Ghostbusters once they knew Bill Murray is going to be in it, right? It was like, oh yeah, there we go. Yeah, Stripes should be more celebrated than it is among people who aren't just Bill Murray fans, but it's it's really good. Um, him and Harold Ramis in it, yeah, that's a good pick. Good, solid. And, see, uh, and the uh, drill sergeant in there, man, like, uh, what, I can't even remember his name off the top of my head, but he does such a good job, like, playing such the butthead. Kind of oh, has yeah. that, almost has, like, some full Metal Jacket vibes as kind of being the butthead, because even, like, later on, when he comes back and is dealing with them, like he's still kind of he's still kind of a butthead, so he never stops being a d bag in the whole movie. Yeah, without a doubt, those two are so funny in there. Honorable mention for that uh, stripes. <laughs> John Candy's in there, and he's hilarious too. Oh, yep. And so a funny thing like Guardians of the Galaxy is one of my favorite movies, right? So 
Um, you notice like when songs are reused throughout there. So during the mud wrestling scene, I think they have the rubber band man song playing that plays, uh, it's the only actual song. It's not a score in infinity wars when the guardians of the galaxy appear. Oh yeah. The score for stripes is really good too, actually. Oh, it's very iconic. Yeah. Like I love some of those eighties scores because they're like, so, so well done. Like you just hear it and you're like, oh yeah, you know exactly what's going on. Like some newer ones aren't quite the same way like i don't a lot of new new comedies don't have scores so much anymore as they do a lot of just pop music and stuff yep and so one of my favorites it's still doing a lot of stuff is alan silvestri obviously he did back to the future and a number of other things but you know he really i love hearing his stuff in newer movies as well yeah but what's your what's your number three number three this is one that um, I was, like, thinking, Justin might put this on his list. It's very possible that this one is your number three or number two, if I had to guess. Um, this pair is in two films, and they are inseparable. I can't pick my favorite out of the two. They're both really good from the years 1992 and 93. I speak of Wayne Campbell and Garth Algar. Oh, you like that. I did that Ghostbusters mashup. Is a, Garth is a, is a Ghostbuster, and my buddy Nick did uh, Wayne is a Ghostbuster. We went to uh, Wizard World Chicago that way. It was a hell of a good time. And then I yeah. did another Halloween years before is Wayne and Garth with my buddy Josh. Uh, yeah. Actually, they didn't make my list there. One of my honorable mentions. Um, I love those movies. But uh, carry on. They had to be on my list. And they had to be number three, I felt, because the same points I made for Tommy Boy can be made for Wayne's World, but on a whole new level because they actually did have experience playing those characters, not only together, but writing them together and doing all that. That that movie... it It's so... Well, the, just both of those movies. They're so perfect. It's all these different kinds of comedy with interesting plots. You know, there's music. If you're a music fan, those movies are like some of the holy grail of music comedies among, you know, stuff like Spinal Tap. Absolutely. They have a lot of good music. They have good music guest stars in there and everything else, right? Uh, right. So that's really awesome. Um, definitely, definitely enjoy those. What do you got for number three? Well, my number three are Jake and Elliot, the Blues Brothers. Or sorry, Elliot. I'm a fucking idiot. Sound like a retard. You sound like a moron when you say it wrong. <laughs> Let's make like a tree and leave. I've had to stop looking at my notes while I talk. I think that's where I keep running into problems with speech and stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's the Blues Brothers, though, man. Like To me, that is the epitome of excellence in a movie like that, right? It's yeah. uh, Belushi is so good in that. Dan Aykroyd does a great Elwood where he's just like the kind of quiet guy, straight-faced. Yeah. Got Carrie Fisher in there as the crazy girlfriend. Like, who doesn't like that? I mean, uh, all it, the musical good. cameos in that. Ray Charles, Urethra Franklin. Did you say Urethra Franklin? <laughs> Urethra. <laughs> That's what I heard you Urethra say. Urethra Franklin. I've always wanted to use that as a cover band name if I, I was in a blues band. Urethra Franklin is what I'd call it. That would be my uh, roller derby name. Nice. <laughs> 
So there's not much more to say about the Blues Brothers. You know them, you yeah. love them, you want to be them. What's your number two? My number two. 1989. Um, this duo is the best straight man and goofy motherfucker combination possible for me. This movie was directed by John Hughes that they're in. I'm talking about Neil Page and Del Griffith from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. That's a very iconic duo right there. I love that movie. So, this came to mind, and I was immediately like, oof, that's got to be high on my list. I couldn't immediately even think of someone to put higher on the list. Obviously, I eventually did, because they're my number two. But... Three coins in a fountain, <laughs> each one seeking happiness. It's such yeah, a good on. movie. They're, they're yeah. bicker back and forth, and just the, all the scenes with them together, which is most of that movie, obviously, is just gold after gold. Yeah, like that's a... For us, that's a holiday tradition. Like every Thanksgiving Eve, we all watch uh, planes, trains, and automobiles as a fa- as a family or separately if we're not all together. But it's just something we've always done since, man. We've done that basically since that released on home video, as far as I know. Oh yeah, I still have so that fun. on VHS. The one that so we watched. So fun fact: kids, so. we had a we had that as a VHS copy as kids, and we recorded it from TV where they had an alternate scene there where on the airplane. Uh, there's a brownie scene, like where the you get hair all over the brownie, and it's like kind of gross. And uh, <laughs> they have that as one of the extras on the on the home video release on the Blu-ray and the DVD, I believe. And it's funny every time we watched it, our mom would bring it up. Oh, there's they don't oh, have yeah. the airplane scene in here where they <laughs> eat yeah, the brownie. You're, you're, you're having to explain to your mom that you're like, hey, you know, they do TV edits in movies. They don't really do that anymore. They usually just edit content out they don't replace it with anything but yeah that's one thing i miss about the old days the good old days is the movies had stuff replaced in there to kind of fill timing slots to take out some of the more vulgar stuff to make it more family friendly and so i wish they did that more often now there's also rumors that they shot probably three and a half to four hours worth of content for this movie yeah of like additional stuff between the planes trains and automobiles like i've heard that a lot of the stuff on the train was basically cut right the train seems very short mm-hmm. but i've heard there's a, a lot of additional stuff on there but with uh john hughes no longer being with us my hopes of a extended director's cut of that movie are uh are just a pipe dream yeah what's your number two my number two is uh, Alex Winter and his good old buddy old pal. You might know him from movies such as The Matrix, Speed, about a million other things. Uh, Point Break! John Wick series. Good old Keanu Reeves. And I'm talking about none other than Bill and Ted. Now, here's the thing. So when we talked, Bill and Ted and Wayne and Garth, for me, were very close to being in the same spot on the list. I chose Bill and Ted just because 
to me, like they're just so much more absurd that like I can watch Wayne's World anytime it's on. But like Bill and Ted is so silly and goofy that like I have to be in a mood for those. But when I watch them, like they just crack me up. Evil robot uses. Yeah. And then station. Like what's not to like about all that stuff, right? I'm just going to say that I lived near the uh, Circle K from the first film. I was like three miles from it and would go there all the time. Nice. And how come you don't have any profile photos in front of it, you jerk? I have one. I don't have a profile picture, but I have a picture of me in front of it. You jerk. So what's your number one? Number one duo. Number one, I have a feeling could be your number one. This film, or should I say film trilogy from 1985, 1989, and 1990. I speak, of course, of Mark. Mark. <laughs> Mark. Mark I and Darty. I was going to record a podcast, but then I got high. No. Doc and Marty. Rick and Morty? Actually, you know, I considered that at one point, but it's just really too derivative of Doc and Marty to not list Doc, Doc and, Marty and Marty instead. You know, they are my number one, Doc and Marty. No uh, ifs, ands, or buts. No coconuts. All right, why? I, Back to the Future is one of those kidding. movies. Everyone knows why. It's Back to the Future. We don't, need to, <laughs> we don't need to explain ourselves for that. But go ahead if you want. I was just going to say that I. it's one of those movies I didn't watch it with you. I discovered Back to the Future on my own on TV on cable one night and was like... What the fuck? This is amazing. And then I brought it up to mom, and she ended up showing me the rest of the movies. And then eventually we went to Universal Studios, and I rode the Back to the Future ride when they still had it. Yeah, that kiss my ass. I, I never got to ride that, so screw you. Yeah, but it's still dope. They got it on the, the Blu-ray. At least the Blu-ray I have has the ride on it, so you can watch it. Yeah, they keep re-releasing that stuff with just extras, and I'm like, oh, you guys are trying to get me to spend more money, and I've just, I just haven't done that yet. I need to get that version, though. I have the, I have the version that has the worst package in history. I even looked it up, and everybody else complains about it. There's YouTube videos on how bad the packaging for the Back to the Future Blu-ray collection I have is. Because the case is so bad that you can't hardly get the discs out without feeling like you're breaking them and shit. It's retarded. Oh, the inside. Is it one of those clear plastic hard cases on the inside yeah and the discs are layered on top of each other and there's ed like all the edges of the disc are covered it's fucking stupid yeah, we weird, don't want to do stupid stuff like that so i feel like i'm gonna break them when i watch it so fun fact on that so our father took me to see back to the future 2 in theaters oh i'm jealous of that it was pretty awesome up until the very end when it says to be continued on it and dad got up and was like what the fuck is this shit he was very mad about it being continued <laughs> that's fucking awesome so I, I remember that distinctly because it was like I, I didn't think it was a big deal to have another movie coming like they're just at least they're just being honest with you right it's like when right. a band's gonna do an encore like you know it's gonna happen but when they at least tell you about it you know what's going on with it you know <laughs> instead of just coming back out later and doing more and they even gave you a little preview of some of the uh, footage for the new movie. So, Oh, for sure. 
but yeah, I'll, I'll remember that till the day I die because like <laughs> we stood up to walk out of the theater and he was like clearly upset about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I feel like I have to write that scene into a movie. I, you should. So I've got a very controversial number one duo. Do you now? Most people are going to look at me and wonder, like, what the hell's wrong with you? Am I? But I hope not. You might. I mean, you can't see me right now. You can only hear me, so you'll probably make <laughs> a face, and I won't be able to judge the face you make for you judging what I chose as my number one. Harry and Marv from Home Alone 1 and Home Alone 2. All right. Before you say anything, I will just say that I will defend your pick to the death, sir. Go ahead. Well, good. I'm glad we're on the same page. So I find myself quoting these two idiots all the time. It's so easy to use their stupid one-liners in life just to relate to people. Even did it on episode one, you know, when I said you're sick, Marv. Exactly. And I even did it earlier, and I don't even think you caught it when I, said, when I called you a jerk. Because <laughs> the way Joe Pesci says jerk in that movie is amazing. Yeah. And, like, as an adult, you almost, like, feel for him because, like, they're just getting destroyed by this little smartass of a kid in two different cities. But, you know, they're just so stupid, they're lovable. And yeah. they, like, steal the show, right? You know, if you didn't have them in there, and I know if you watch the... Movies that made us on Netflix, you can get a little bit more in-depth on there, and they talk about how they built so many of the stuff for for the in- interior shots of that movie on a sound stage, or in a high school gym, I believe. Uh, yeah. It's pretty awesome seeing that. Really cool to see what they did were there, and then they almost uh, didn't have uh, the guy that played Marv in it. Um, what was his name? Because he's Daniel also Stern. in the first city slickers. Yep, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, so with uh, him... I think he signed up for the movie, and Good then stuff. he changed out. But he's he's way underrated as an actor. But he just you have somebody like Joe Pesci, and you're just like, what is he gonna do? And then you get him in this funny movie like that, right? Where he's just not playing the same old mobster character. And like to me, like that's just amazing that he just is able to go be this bumbling idiot thief. And his lines, the way he talks to to Marv all the time, and then you know, like one of the best lines is, you know. If you ever have somebody that smells like strongly, you're like, Harry, are you wearing aftershave? And he's like, <laughs> the rope soaked in kerosene. And it's like, oh, yeah, such stupid bullshit. And like just the way they act and respond to everything. Oh, yeah. Even it's like solid. when uh, he tries to pretend like he's getting hit in the face, he's like, oh, right in the schnage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I always used to say schnage? that. Yeah, I know. It's like right in the schnage. Like, yeah, you get hit in the face or you're going to smack somebody in the face or whatever else. Yeah, right in the schnage. Because no one says the word snage besides him. We had a pretty good list there. We had uh, no crossover. That was pretty good. No crossovers, but we definitely have some agreeals there on some of those ones that just didn't hit that list. Now, top ten we could have talked about probably easily for an hour. Now, our most honorable mention, before we move on, would be Edgar and Alan Frog. Well, clearly, we named our podcast after these two. So, Those are two great characters that are so subtle in that movie, but they really tie it together and like really make it amazing. So um, definitely appreciate what they did in that movie. Given that I think what we were doing was more or less comedy duos, and those two are more of the straight killers, they have one-liners as they kill, but 
Is anybody going to argue that Marv and Harry are funnier than the Frog Brothers? I don't think so. Or not funnier than the Frog Brothers? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's hard to say. So let us know what you guys out there think, right? If you're listening to this, give us your give us your top five duos in a comedy movie. Let us know what you guys think out there. I'd love to see what everyone else does, because this is going to be so different for everybody, right? Yeah. So Hit like, us up on whatever. We're on social media. Yeah, you guys have the, you know, you and I have the same taste in movies, really. A lot of overlap, but look how different our lists are, right? So right. there's so many there that I could easily change your list out and be pretty happy with it. Like, I wouldn't argue any of those on there, but just what came to mind. Don't do any research. Just right. think about the duos and what comes to mind on your own without looking anything up. That's kind of what we're doing with these top fives. We're not doing research. Just just, just let it be free. Let it flow. Yeah. Well, with that being said, I think we'll uh, move on to uh, our last segment of the day. Happy Anniversary is a new segment that Alec came up with and thought we should talk about movies that are at least 15 years older, and we're going to celebrate their release. So Alec chose a movie that has kind of a cult following. It's not really widely loved, but you want to tell us what you chose, and then we can get into it? Yeah, so today is, uh, what, April 11th or something? As we record this, at least. It's the 12th. So, uh... This anniversary is on uh, Tuesday, the 14th. It's the 20th anniversary from the year 2000. April 14th, 2000, the year American Psycho came out. And American Psycho, a true yeah. American classic. It's a fucked up movie. But I will tell you, as someone who's read the book, it could be much fucking worse. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I've, I've got a copy of the book right here in front of me. I haven't read it yet, but it's definitely on my list of things to read. But based on how dark and twisted some of it is, it's like, okay, I, you almost need to be in a mood for that. And for me, like, a wintertime is not a good time for me to read a bizarre book like that. I'll do that when it's hot and it's nice and we got good weather going on. Keep me in a good yeah. state of mind. I mean, this movie has a lot of sexual violence and violence in general possibly hallucinating just odd bizarre behavior in general but it's also gold it's hilarious sometimes it's it's so over the horrifying. top but it's also like when you look at what it's listed as it's listed as horror and satire right so with the satire piece you have to yeah you have to take it with a grain of salt because like some of the depictions of sexual violence in this movie are like way over the top and way absurd and um, yeah like really uncomfortable to see a lot of that but you know for the story they're trying to tell it makes sense for what it is so you know well, they were good at implying more sexual violence than actually happened like when he pulls out a hanger and says we're not done here then they flash forward and show to whenever they're done as opposed to showing the shit because believe me in 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 a very nice words i will describe to you a short scene from the book where a man takes a man named Patrick Bateman, <laughs> takes a power drill to a woman who is nailed to the floor. He takes it to her mouth, and then he proceeds to, in, in, in a nice way, make love to her mouth. 
But yeah, he has used too much. Twisted. He's used too much pepper spray though on her face, melting out her eyeballs, that his dick goes numb. And I'm not telling you this just to be shock funny, because I don't find that funny. I'm just saying that's really fucked up, and that's how the book is. So if you can't handle reading... I don't know if I'm going to be able to read that then. That's really twisted. Yeah. And it's 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 still satirical, but those scenes are why it had a, had a lot of issues with um, women and women's rights organizations. Because they couldn't understand the satire of it. And I understand that. But I still do find it to be a satire, and I, it is one of my favorite books still. Well, you look at Christian Bale's performance, and right, he nails the character down really well. He does a good yes. job of looking lifeless, like while also just like being in the zone and like trying to act like he's normal. Right? He also has like that calm glazedness over his eyes that's really it's, unsettling to watch. It's really good. Here's a couple things I'll talk about real quick. There's a the lifelessness you were mentioning, you know, it comes from the fact that this is a satire and a critique on basically Wall Street yuppies because they all call each other the wrong name throughout the movie because they're all so superficial. They're only concerned about themselves and how these other people affect them as opposed to caring anything about anyone else. And obviously Patrick Bateman's like that, but all the other people are just as much like that as him. That's why they're all calling each other the wrong name throughout the entire movie. It's this disconnect that they have, these Wall Street yuppie-type people that it's a critique on. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think I think he wrote this book like after The Wolf of Wall Street was, you know, kind of a in the popular zeitgeist by then. When did that happen? The late 80s, when that actually happened in real life? Yeah, but this book was written in the late 80s. Yeah, I think it came out in 91. Takes place in the 80s, though. Yeah. He wrote it in the late 80s for sure. So he could have read about all that Wall Street stuff, but I don't think that book came out till much later. But that stuff did actually happen, so he could have read about the events of it for sure. Yeah, because I've got a copy in front of me, and the copyright is 1991. There was a lot of that in the counterculture in the late 80s of anti-Wall Street, anti-Yuppie stuff, just kind of like there is now. There's another resurgence of it, but it was a lot smaller back then because you didn't have the connection that you have with the internet and all that stuff these days, but... Yeah, that's true, right? A lot of that culture stuff wasn't as widely known and ingrained, so you could see right. that. The thing about this movie that really makes it stand out, though, to me, is the cast that it has in it, right? Look at what so many of these cast members have done otherwise besides this, right? So you got Christian Bale. I mean, look at his resume. It's pretty impressive. You got Jared yeah. Leto. I'm not a Jared Leto fan necessarily, but there's times where he does do a good job as being like a secondary character, right? You don't even right. know or really realize it's Jared Leto in this movie, right? Because he's not trying to be the chameleon that he wants to be in his newer newer stuff. Right. You got Reese Witherspoon in there. I mean, look what she's gone on to do. And then obviously you got Willem Dafoe. Now, Dafoe's no stranger to being in weird controversial movies either, but you know, I think the cast that's in this movie really makes it like I don't think a lot of these people would do a movie like this now just based on the controversy that it would be about. And I honestly oh, sure. don't think, based on your descriptions, that any of the people in this movie actually read the book. I think they just read the script and said, okay, and, and kind of figured out what it was about. But I don't think they read the book and been like, why the hell is this book getting adapted to a movie? It's kind of one of those that, you know, some things are, are better left as a book, but 
there's some really good stuff in this movie as well. Like Bale's performance, the way he's able to like act out, lash out irrationally, like a slasher film almost while talking about Huey Lewis in the news. Like there's some really, really brilliance in the way he acts, but at the same time, right. It's very unsettling for a lot of the things in that movie. So if you hate this movie, there's a lot of bad sexual violence towards women. And I, I totally get that. Not going to defend that at all, but there, there is some things in there that make it really interesting to view. Yeah. Those are all satirical references to exactly how he is and what his character is. So that's why it has, has to be exactly what it is. But thankfully it's nowhere near as bad as the book, but the movie is solid and entertaining and there's things from it. A lot of his monologues and things like that are directly out of the book. Um, like all of his speeches while he's talking about, you know, do you like Huey Lewis in the news or Whitney Houston and Phil Collins, Genesis? Those are all special chapters in the book where he stops what he's doing. And the next chapter, he literally just talks about Phil Collins to the reader. And okay, so, so they the- found a way of putting that into the movie and layering it over him murdering people which isn't in the book like that, but it fucking is genius and it works so well. Yeah. I was going to say not having read it, you know, that, that is interesting concept that those are all separate, right? Because clearly he's very passionate about like the pop culture stuff and the zeitgeist going on at the time. So you see him doing all these things, but uh, you know, that's, that's an interesting fact that those are just written like that in the book. Yeah. I hate to talk about the book so much on the film anniversary, but it's, it's hard not to, um, well, you get this. I was say. So let's. I got a few things I want to tie together on this, though, right? So we were talking Scientology earlier, right? So one of the things I read when I was looking up some information on this movie again, because I haven't watched it recently, but I've seen it. I've seen it three or four times at least. Um, is that Christian Bale based his portrayal of um, Patrick Bateman on an interview that he saw Tom Cruise do, where he said that Tom Cruise like was like coming across very happy, excited, but he like also just seemed like very cold and distant in the eyes. Yeah. And like, to me, I'm thinking like, was this pre or post Tom Cruise joining the church of Scientology? Like, right. Because he's very good at, you know, he's a good actor. So he has the ability to put on a performance, right? So when he's doing like appearances and things like that, he's performing as Tom Cruise. Oh, yeah. And then the, like the Scientology shit, I think's like the real nutcase that he truly is. But I wanted to ask you, since you've read it, so in the book it says that um, it references that Tom Cruise lives in the same um, building that Patrick Bateman lives in. Is that correct? Yeah. he's. Um, there's a short scene where he runs into him in the elevator, and he talks to him, and he creeps him out a little bit. Oh, doesn't he? I, I think he mispl- mistitles the movie as bartender instead of cocktail is what I heard. Yeah. Interesting. It's, um, he also, they go to a U2 concert in the book. There's a couple things about the book that I'll talk about that just help you understand the movie better. Every time Patrick Bateman, a new scene starts in the book or a new chapter or it moves to a new location or a new person walks in the room, whatever, an introduction of a person or telling you who was around there, you will have a good paragraph or two or three describing what everyone is wearing in great detail. Like, this person's wearing an Armani suit, buttoned down, double-breasted, pinstriped, with, uh, and he goes through their shoes, their wardrobe, their hair, their accessories, the men and the women. 
He also goes through, just like in uh, the movie, and talks about his workout regimen and his diet excessively. Every time he's eating, he says what he's eating. He goes to the gym. The videotapes are brought up a lot more in the book. I have to return some videotapes. Yeah, that's um, all very interesting, right? So I guess uh, it's it's pretty strange, like that a movie like that or a movie like that would be made based on like how dark the book is. But look at any horror movies, right? And it's a little bit different. But yeah, you know the fact that it is satire, I think, just goes to show like the level of violence in that is is a little off putting for for most people, like myself included. It's just like there's definitely moments in that movie where you're uncomfortable, but um you know, what do you do with that, right? Obviously, it just makes you more self-aware of that, and hopefully, you know, you don't admire that type of, like, madness and, you know, disgust, but, you know, make good decisions yourself, and, um, you know, definitely, it's a very interesting movie to be, to really like, because I do enjoy it, but like I said, there's just a lot of things that, like, make you uncomfortable and and yeah. little squeamish in there at times where you're just like, you know... Uh, you the know, book's the you same know, way. And you just kind of, well, at least with the movie, though, you can, like, close your eyes and get through it. Like, with the book, I, I mean, I guess you could skip sections, but how do you know what to skip? Well, that's the thing, is, as you're reading it, it's it's a lot, it's not as graphic. It's, it's, it's graphic reading it, you know, but it's not as bad as even watching it or seeing the pain of emotion on someone's face. You can imagine it, but if you literally just read the words... And you're not trying to picture it in great detail, at least the horrifying, fucked up shit. It helps. Um, yeah, I guess I that's think a the good book, tip. It's the book is more clear that it's satire, I think, than the movie as well. Because, like I was saying, it shows how superficial he is. He's more concerned about what people are wearing. He doesn't tell you anything about these people. He goes about what they're wearing. And then he fucking doesn't talk about the people. Basically, he just says, "This is what the conversation we had." You know, yeah, all I mean, he does, I, he's I, talking about his body and his workout, all that crazy shit. Just the, I get that because there's so much of it. Yeah, that in in the book that I haven't seen. You know, like I get that you're saying there's a lot of the vanity stuff, right? Which you see in the movie, but as always, like with the movie, to compared to a book, there's going to be additional layering that you got to explain with context. Like with the movie, a lot of that's going to be in there, but you just have to use the visual cues and experience that, right? So. When you watch exactly. the movie, you can definitely pick up on all the vanity in it, right? So just the way they lust over the business cards and, like, he becomes, like, physically ill over seeing someone has a better business card than him. Right. And, you know, the way they talk about food and they're going over all these, like, high-end gourmet meals and, like, just the utter disgust and, like, yeah, you, you can really get that in there. So if you're, if you're not looking for that, it, it's easy to to easy to miss that. But, yeah, it's really unsettling with some of that stuff. So you definitely yeah. see how it's all based on vanity, wealth, and um, greed. For a lot disgust. of people, that's just nothing you can relate to. Yeah. Overall, I like the movie. I like the book. Um, happy anniversary to American Psycho. Yep. Let us know what you guys think. Jump on our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Let us know. Do you love this movie? Do you hate this movie? Where do you fall on it? Have you read the book? How do you think it compares to the book? We're going to move on and just kind of wrap this thing up here. So it's been definitely a fun episode here. Enjoyed chatting with you, Alec. So, Oh, yeah. This was a good one. It was uh, good and fun to talk about everything. Um, remember to check out all of our social media, like he mentioned. 
We also, uh, you can listen to us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Remember, um, hit us up, follow us, subscribe. We're on Facebook. We're going to be doing some exclusive stuff for YouTube. We're going to get a Patreon going at some point. And um, we'll have a couple exclusive videos and uh, podcast episodes. We're thinking about doing some listen-along commentaries where you can listen to us. The first one we're probably going to do is going to be for the movie Lost Boys. So look out for that. And uh, what do you got? Yeah, I was going to say, just give us feedback. Let you know what you think. What you like about the episode. Um, what do you want to hear in a podcast like this, right? Um, you know, we're really trying to cater this and learn as we go. So the feedback you can provide, it's going to be amazing. Um, yeah. You know, let us know. Alec did a kick-ass job of getting everything up and running for the social media. Um, if you have a podcast outlet that we're not on yet that you really like, let us know. We've got the option to add it to some other places. But kind of based on what's easiest for everybody we know that most people either have apple music or spotify for their mainstreaming and then a lot of people also have youtube and youtube red so you can you can listen on there if you want and we're yep. definitely considering doing like once a quarter doing kind of like a, a live stream video style podcast with some video on there too instead of just doing all strictly audio and then what kind yeah. of guests should we get on here like do you have a friend working on a really cool project like an indie film project or something that we can promote like we want to spend a few minutes too and, and talk about what you guys are doing out there. So let us know how we can promote you out there and, and talk about the projects and things you're passionate about in the world. And definitely looking forward to being back at it next week. And uh, we'll go from there. Yep. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. These are my dinner guests, the Frog Brothers. The, the, the Frog Brothers. Frog Brothers. These are my dinner guests, Frog Brothers. Frog Brothers, Frog Brothers. These are my dinner guests. The Frog Brothers. Frog Brothers, Frog Brothers. These are my dinner guests. Frog Brothers. Frog Brothers, Frog Brothers. These are my dinner guests.